testing one, two, three. Good afternoon everyone, good afternoon everyone and welcome, it's really great to have you all here. My name is Duncan Lockhart, I study engineering here at Sydney University and I'm also the president of the Evangelical Union, a group that's been in existence on our campus here for 78 years and is proud to be the host of this afternoon's lecture. And if you weren't aware, this event is part of a two-week festival we've been putting on right across our campus, the Read Jesus Festival, through which we're asking our campus to join us in considering the life of Jesus, a life that, no matter what you think of it, has certainly had a significant impact on the world as we know it today. And as we do that, we've been joined this week by Dr. John Dixon to help us look at the life of Jesus through the lens of history. John has a PhD in ancient history from Macquarie University, where he is now also an honorary associate of the department. He's also currently the director of the Center for Public Christianity, an organization he co-founded just a few years ago. Uh, more recently, you may recognize him from a televised documentary he did on, on the Seven Network called the, called the Christ Files. Before John comes up to address us today, I wanted to draw your attention to the feedback forms that you would have received on your way in. We'd love it if everyone at these events could fill these in just to let us know that you were here 
also a chance for you to give us any questions or comments you have for the speaker or for the EU more generally. Well, in his last two talks, we've looked at how historians approach firstly the life of Jesus and secondly his death on a Roman cross. Today, a final key aspect of Christian belief on which the faith stands or falls, the resurrection of Jesus. So to address us on that, please join me in welcoming up Dr. John Dixon. Hello again. Thanks for coming back, if indeed you are coming back. Uh, I don't recognise too many faces, but maybe it's a first. Uh, and we're diving in the deep end, if it is your first, uh, with the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to begin with a quotation from a rather unlikely source, as will become clear when I get to the end of it. Concerning the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, I was for decades a Sadducee, which is an ancient Jewish sect that denied the afterlife. I am no longer a Sadducee, since the following deliberation has caused me to think this through anew. When these peasants, shepherds and fishermen, who betrayed and denied their master and then failed him miserably, suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society, convinced of salvation and able to work with much more success after Easter than before Easter, then no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. In a logical, in a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. The lesser of two evils for those who seek a rational explanation. Now, these words were penned not by a clergyman, not even by a Christian historian, but by the late great Professor Pincus Lapide. Uh, it's an interesting name, isn't it? You'd sort of say, Mum, why, Pincus? Uh, in Hebrew, Phineas, Lapide. Uh, from Bailan University in Tel Aviv, uh, a leading German scholar of the first century and an Orthodox Jew. And in his fascinating book on the topic of Jesus' resurrection, he concludes, somewhat surprisingly, I guess, that Jesus really did rise again. The last third of the book is an attempt as an Orthodox Jew to explain uh, how that could possibly be and yet still hold his Orthodox Jewish faith. It's a fascinating book. Now, my quoting Professor Lapide is not uh, presented to you as proof that Jesus rose again. Don't misunderstand why I'm quoting him. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus can't be proven just because some smart German guy uh, who's not a Christian believes that it's true. I quote Professor Lapide simply to illustrate something that is rarely noted in popular discussions of this topic, but goes without saying in academic circles. My point is this. The resurrection of Jesus is still a serious 
topic of inquiry in historical circles. The story of the resurrection is still studied seriously. This needs to be said over and over again because I get the sense that most people, when they hear about the resurrection, they just sort of dismiss it. I went to a lecture, actually it was a debate, between an Oxford professor and uh, Michael Shermer, the head of the US Skeptic Society. And in one sentence, Shermer just dismissed the whole idea of a resurrection as if it were uh, self-evidently nonsense. But even amongst Jewish and atheist scholars, the resurrection story is still studied, taken seriously. Now, I don't think by this that I can prove the resurrection, but I want you to notice something. 20 years ago, uh, a detailed academic annotated bibliography of historical Jesus research listed no fewer than 94 academic journal articles and monographs specifically on the topic of the resurrection. This is not just theology, this is history. Uh, I suspect that number is now at least double that. Ten years ago, Oxford University published the papers of um, interdisciplinary uh, symposium on the topic of Jesus' resurrection. It gathered historians, scientists, philosophers, and theologians together, and then published it. In more recent years is this book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, uh, by one of the leading British New Testament historians, who is also an Anglican bishop of Durham, uh, Tom Wright. And before you think, well, of course, he's an Anglican bishop. Of course he believes in the resurrection. Hold that thought because uh, those of you who know anything about the English scene know that being an Anglican bishop is no guarantee of believing anything in the Bible. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, one of Tom Wright's predecessors, the, a former Bishop of Durham, actually uh, went on the record as saying he didn't think Jesus rose again. Uh, but this is a, a, an analysis of the resurrection that people on all sides of the debate regard as... Uh, the most important volume yet written. People are still writing on the topic. Uh, recently I had a sneak peek of a paper that's about to be published by Professor Francis Watson, Professor of New Testament at Durham University. Uh, is the historian competent to speak of the resurrection of Jesus to be published in Kerugma und Dogma? Look forward to that in 2009. Uh, his answer is a qualified yes. The historian can study the resurrection. All of this flags what I want to say in this lecture. I don't intend to or even believe it is possible to prove the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, what I want to do is lay out for you why the resurrection story is still taken seriously in academic circles. I don't mean theological circles, I mean history circles. I want to lay out for you why it is a lingering puzzle of academic inquiry, which introduces the other thing I want to say by way of introduction. How we assess the plausibility or otherwise of a resurrection depends not only on evidence, but on the assumptions we bring to the question. Philosophy students will like this little bit. If you assume that the laws of nature are the only things regulating the universe, that there's no lawgiver, no God, nothing like that, just the laws of nature, then no matter how good historical evidence is for a thing like a resurrection, you will opt for a natural explanation. Your assumption does not allow you to accept what the historical evidence 
indicates you rule out the resurrection. If, on the other hand, you are open to the possibility that the laws of nature are not the only things regulating the universe, that there is perhaps a lawgiver behind the laws of nature, then you will be open to a thing like a resurrection if the evidence is of a reasonable quality. Again, your assumption helps you read the evidence. And I just want us all to be conscious of our assumptions as we approach this question, which introduces the third thing I want to say by way of introduction when Willie begin the lecture proper. By evidence about the resurrection, I don't mean of the scientific, repeatable kind. This needs to be said over and over in today's culture. Science has a limited sphere of evidentiary relevance, which is just a pretentious way of saying science can demonstrate only so much. Science is fabulous when it comes to the repeatable and or the observable. But as soon as you have something that isn't repeatable and isn't observable, science begins to be a less powerful form of knowing. Science is brilliant at repeating tests about the chemical reactions of certain substances in a human body. You can repeat it over and over and over and come up with a conclusion. Science is fabulous with observing things like the background waves of the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago. All that stuff science should be applauded for. But we must not demand this empirical form of evidence with events which are, by definition, unrepeatable. And by definition, all historical events are unrepeatable. You can't make them happen all over again. So if you insist on an empirical form of scientific method, you rule out virtually all historical knowledge. And you rule out virtually all legal judgments as well. Since, apart from in cases where there is forensic, forensic science um, applied, courts of law don't operate on scientific method. They operate on the analysis of testimony, bias, circumstances, and so on. All I'm saying here is that we must be clear that in looking for evidence of a resurrection, we're not looking for scientific evidence. But of the kind of evidence you would expect in history. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is good in the sense that all we have is historical evidence. And I'll say something that I'll repeat over and over in this lecture. We have exactly the kind of evidence you would expect if a resurrection did take place early in the first century. And much more evidence pointing in the direction of a resurrection than you would expect if it didn't. I'll say that over and over in case I've already puzzled you. Put another way, historians often say something like this. We have a resurrection-shaped dent in the historical record. And the puzzle is to work out how it got there. Okay? So let's be clear, I'm not proving the resurrection, I'm just explaining to you why historians are still taking it seriously. And my first reason they are still taking it seriously, I'll just lay out three reasons for you is that we know Jesus' resurrection was being proclaimed from the very beginning. Why this is very important is because 
Uh, sometimes you hear people say, oh, legends, um, you know, they grow up over 50, 60 years, and, you know, we've got no access to what the earliest Christians believed. The resurrection story was just sort of added to the figure of Jesus as we go along. Unfortunately, that is ruled out by the evidence. Our earliest piece of evidence is this little creed that I've quoted uh, several times in these uh, talks I've been giving you. Uh, the Apostle Paul quotes a creed which scholars agree was handed over to him in either 31-32 when he was in Damascus or 33-34 when he was in Jerusalem. And the creed says, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he quotes this very famous creed. It's, it's clear that it's a creed in, uh, in the Greek language. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Now, the scholarly consensus, even of those who rule out the possibility of uh, a resurrection, is that this creed was formulated within months or at the most a couple of years of the purported events themselves. I've given you a couple of atheist scholars for you to go investigate. Um, Gerd Ludemann, a famous German New Testament scholar, and Robert Funk, who uh, will lay out the evidence for the very early nature of this creed. Now, the point of emphasizing this is that it establishes beyond reasonable doubt that the resurrection story was not a legendary accumulation in the Jesus story. It was the bedrock of the Jesus movement from the very beginning. And so the historical question posed by scholars is this. How did a bizarre claim like Jesus' resurrection become part of Christianity from the very beginning? One can understand how stories build up over time, but how did this become so right at the very beginning? The answer lies in two more pieces of data generally accepted by scholars. My second piece of data is this. Scholars agree, for very good historical reasons, that the tomb of Jesus was in fact empty. There was an empty tomb requiring explanation. I quote Geza Vermesh, professor of Jewish studies, Oxford University. It goes without saying, not a Christian. In his famous little book, Jesus the Jew, he writes, From these various records, two reasonably convincing points merge. One positive, the other negative. First, the women belonging to the entourage of Jesus discovered an empty tomb and were definite that it was the tomb. Second, the rumour that the apostles stole the body is most improbable. From the psychological point of view, they would have been too depressed and shaken to be capable of such a dangerous undertaking. But above all, since neither they nor anyone else expected a resurrection, there would have been no purpose in faking one. There was an empty tomb. Uh, this is uh, generally accepted amongst uh, his historians, and this judgment is based on several historical considerations, perhaps the most powerful one being that we know from very early on in the whole Jew uh, Christian history uh, that the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem spread the rumour that the disciples had taken the body of Jesus from the tomb. Now, pause and think about that. We know that from very early on, the Jerusalem leadership said the disciples stole the body from the tomb. This makes it clear that even the critics of the early Christian movement agreed there was an empty tomb. They just disputed how it got that way. That's my second piece of firm historical data. Not only do we know the resurrection was being proclaimed 
very early after the event itself. Secondly, we know that it was widely known there was an empty tomb. Thirdly, significant numbers of people put themselves forward as eyewitnesses. Now, this is a piece of the historical data we have. People put themselves forward as eyewitnesses. Now, there are plenty of places we could turn here. Just about every one of the 27 books of the New Testament makes reference to the witnesses. In fact, this point is not even in dispute in scholarship. Everyone agrees people were putting themselves forward as eyewitnesses. The most significant text about the witnesses is the one that I just mentioned from 1 Corinthians 15. And we need to be clear about what this statement is. It's not only an incredibly early statement, it's a statement that includes first-hand eyewitness reporting, certainly in the case of the Apostle Paul, who goes on and says in verse 7, then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, incidentally, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. But more than that, we have listed here six individuals or groups of witnesses known at the time to be eyewitnesses to the event itself. And to this list of six uh, eyewitnesses, which include Kephas or Peter, the 12 apostles, 500 of the brothers, James, the brother of Jesus, all of the apostles, and Paul, to this we can add the testimony of another group that isn't mentioned in this creed. It's a testimony, however, that most historians accept as very early and reliable. It's the testimony of the women. Now, this is very interesting. The Gospels all agree that women were the first witnesses of an empty tomb and the risen Jesus, which may not sound very striking to us all these years later, but historians do puzzle over this because in the first century, we know that a woman's testimony was not valued. I mean, I feel embarrassed even to read out these texts, so forgive me, but I'm just quoting ancient texts here, right? Here's Josephus writing in the first century. From women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. <laughs> You're not meant to laugh. Uh, let me quote ancient Palestinian law book, the Mishnah. The law governing an oath of testimony applies to men and not to women, to those who are suitable to bear witness and not to those who are unsuitable to bear witness. Uh, I apologise for even reading it out. But I'm sure you can see the point. If you were making up a story about the resurrection and you wanted your fellow first century Jews to believe it, you would not include women as the first witnesses. Unless it happened embarrassingly to be true. And it just entered into all four Gospels because that's what was remembered as having happened. Historical analysis leaves us with at least three firm pieces of historical data. These are not three proofs of the resurrection. Uh, I hope you're hearing me when I say I'm laying out for you the three reasons historians still take the resurrection story seriously. And they are these. Claims about Christ's resurrection were made from the beginning and so cannot have arisen as, as legend. The tomb of Jesus was known to be empty and significant numbers of witnesses, men and women, claimed to have seen Jesus alive from the dead. All of this we can say 
with a high degree of historical confidence. Which is why I said at the beginning, we have exactly the kind of evidence you would expect if a resurrection did take place, and much more evidence pointing in the direction of a resurrection than you could expect if it didn't. We have, in other words, a resurrection-shaped dent in the historical record. And this is why historians still puzzle over it. This is where historical analysis leads us, but it's also where historical analysis leaves us, because how you go on from this data to interpret the evidence depends on those assumptions. If you assume that the laws of nature are the only things governing the universe, then you will dismiss all this, or at least try and look for a naturalistic explanation. But if you don't think the laws of nature are the only things regulating the universe, if you are open to the possibility that there is a God regulating the laws of nature, then you will remain open, at least theoretically, to the possibility of a resurrection if the historical evidence points strongly in that direction. But what I want to do now is I want to explore some of the popular attempts to explain the, away the resurrection on the assumption that it can't have happened. You see what I'm doing here? Uh, I want to apply that assumption that it can't happen because resurrections don't happen, won't happen, can't happen, and uh, see what the most popular explanations are. Now, I also want to point out that none of these explanations features in the academic literature. This is popular stuff I want to deal with for the next uh, few minutes. Scholars tend to remain agnostic about what explains these three pieces of information. If they do discuss the explanations I'm going to mention in a moment, it's usually just in a sentence to dismiss them. So, I want to make clear that these are the naturalistic explanations of the resurrection. And the first naturalistic explanation is the oldest. It's the body snatching theory. Uh, this was the explanation offered by the Jerusalem authorities, we know from two texts from the period. Uh, on this scenario, the resurrection rests on wholesale fraud. Uh, Jesus' disciples uh, somehow got his body out of the tomb and uh, all the way to the end of their lives proclaimed him as risen from the dead when they in fact knew he wasn't. Now, I want to admit this remains a possibility that the whole resurrection story was an early fraud. But it's seriously undermined by the fact that there is no adequate motive for the deception. Many of you will have heard Cicero's famous dictum, qui bono, who benefits? If the disciples of Jesus had benefited from their claim about the resurrection, we could apply Cicero's dictum, qui bono, who benefits? If they had become rich, famous, if they had risen in social status, uh, gone on to live long, healthy lives as a result, then you could perhaps suspect there was something in it for them. That's what motivated the deception. Problem is, we know that's what didn't happen. In fact, quite the opposite happened. We know that key eyewitnesses lost social status because of their claim about the resurrection, became poorer than they were before, uh, were beaten, arrested. We have excellent evidence for the execution of several of the key eyewitnesses, including, interestingly, the execution of Jesus' own brother, James, whose execution for his claim about his brother 
is recorded in a non-Christian source from the first century, Josephus. It's true that fanatics sometimes die for causes they believe in. But ponder this. These people were in a position to know whether the cause was a fiction. And yet they gave their lives. I've already quoted Professor Vermesh that the rumour that the apostles stole the body is most improbable. But let me quote another uh, famous Jewish historian, Professor Joseph Klausner, who is probably the father of the Jewish historian's analysis of Jesus. He says, it is impossible to suppose there was any conscious deception. The other naturalistic explanation of the resurrection story is that Jesus didn't actually die. He just swooned. This is known as the swoon theory. He uh, fell unconscious on the cross and was laid in a tomb and got better and uh, came out of the tomb and convinced his followers that he was the gloriously risen Messiah. The only recent scholar to propose this is one well-known in Sydney circles, Barbara Thiering. In her 1992 book, Jesus the Man. Interestingly, she has Jesus being crucified, not in Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans, but at Qumran, out by the Dead Sea, at the hands of Jews. This is very interesting. Uh, very interesting. She has no evidence for this, but she needs to place Jesus being executed out of the public in order to come up with the theory that Jesus was given some sort of medicine or even perhaps a poison on the cross out at Qumran, and that he fell unconscious, was buried, and then just got better and convinced everyone he was alive again. Um, it's difficult to know how to respond to Barbara Thiering at this point. Um, it feels a little bit like trying to respond to the, uh, the man who came up to me after a talk recently and convinced that he'd found a scholar who argued that the sun, in fact, revolved around the earth and that this was now proven. Um, where do you begin? In the case of Barbara Thiering, it's telling that the only supportive scholar quoted on the back of her book is Philip Davies of Sheffield University, a well-known professor of New Testament at Sheffield. Uh, he's quoted positively on the back cover, but he issued a statement immediately on the book's publication, and I quote, I was not approached about being quoted on the cover or anywhere, and I certainly do not want to be associated with the thesis she is peddling. I know that sometimes people with unusual ideas have been badly treated by the establishment, and that is why I don't like to see Barbara persecuted. But by now, the roles seem to have been reversed. She is hardly a victim, except of her own ideas, which she is incapable of assessing critically, it seems. The swoon theory is supported by no scholar I know of in contemporary scholarship, for the simple reason that everything we know about Roman crucifixion leads us to believe that people did not survive the formal crucifixion penalty. Hearing knows that, which is why she has Jesus crucified, not by Romans in Jerusalem, but out at Qumran by Jews, even though there's no evidence for that. The final explanation is the so-called vision theory. 
Some propose that the resurrection of Jesus is to be understood not as an event in the physical world, but an event in the head of the disciples, a faith experience in the head and heart of the disciples. It was some kind of visionary encounter. Now, the most obvious problem with the vision theory is that it doesn't explain an empty tomb. Because presumably if there was just a vision and nothing other than a vision, and they started to proclaim it as a resurrection, someone would have walked down the road and found the body still safely in place in the tomb. Add to this the fact that religious visions were very highly regarded in the first century. Very highly regarded. In fact, uh, the New Testament uses the word horama, from which we get panorama and so on, uh, 11 times of religious visions, but never in reference to the resurrection. Here's the question that puzzles historians. If the resurrection were a religious vision, why did people well accustomed to visions and favorably disposed toward them describe what happened to Jesus not as a vision, but as an historical event? Could, of course, been a grief-induced hallucination rather than a religious vision. However, although individuals are known to have hallucinated about their dearly departed, we don't have examples of individuals and groups together and alone over a period of several weeks having the same hallucination, which is exactly what we have in the sources about Jesus' resurrection. People alone and together over a period of many weeks seeing the same thing. The hallucination theory does not have many adherents, not in scholarly circles anyway. To re-quote Phineas Lapide or Pincus Lapide, no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation in the apostles. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. Most professional scholars don't attempt to explain away the resurrection. This is the thing that I really want to underline for you. These naturalistic explanations are the, are the stuff of popular literature, not scholarly literature. Most scholars, whether they're Jewish and Christian and atheistic, um, tend to remain agnostic about what explains the data because they're operating as historians. And so they want to stop where the historical evidence stops. And it's quite fun to read this sort of secular approach because generally they say stuff like, Something happened, we just don't know what it was. And I'll quote one of the leading uh, scholars, Professor uh, Ed Sanders, Duke University, self-confessed agnostic. Uh, he gets to the point <clears throat> where he discusses the resurrection and he says, that Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences is in my judgment a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to the experience, I do not know. It's just a way of saying something very strange happened. The data tells us that. What it was... I don't know. Uh, to quote another leading scholar, Professor James Charlesworth, who's the director of the Princeton Dead Sea Scrolls Project, leading uh, historian of Judaism and early Christianity, he says, the historian also observes evidence that unexpectedly a blazing zeal launches a massive missionary mission within Second Temple Judaism. It is headed by Peter and then Paul. Each of them is credited with a resurrection experience. Most historians imagine that without something happening, Palestinian Jesus movement would have drowned in lost hopes. 
This is why I keep saying that we have exactly the kind of evidence you would expect if a resurrection did take place. And much more evidence pointing in the direction of a resurrection than you would expect if it didn't. And it's this surplus of evidence, this resurrection-shaped dent in the historical record, that is the reason there's a lingering puzzle in historical circles. Let me repeat, I'm not trying to prove the resurrection. I'm just laying out for you why it's still taken seriously in historical circles. That is as far as historical analysis can get us. What we do with the historical data depends on our assumptions. Those of us who assume the laws of nature are the only things regulating the universe will opt for a naturalistic explanation, no matter how implausible that may be. Your assumption drives you to a certain conclusion. If, however, like most Australians, you are open to the possibility of there being a God behind the laws of nature, then, given the direction in which the historical evidence points, you will feel rationally justified in remaining open to the possibility that Jesus rose again. In both cases, evidence only plays a part in the decision. Much more than evidence is involved in whether we accept the resurrection or not. And this is a point made well in a completely untrue story that I pinched from someone else, who said, a man woke up one day convinced he was dead, utterly convinced, and his wife was a little puzzled by this, as you would be, and tried to convince him he was actually alive. He said, no, no, no I'm dead. She observed that he was talking about being dead, and so that was probably counter-evidence, and he was not convinced he was dead. She invited friends over who tried to convince him he really was alive, that he was convinced he was dead. They invited a leading psychiatrist to come over and discuss the matter, and the psychiatrist did everything he could to convince this man that, no, he was not dead, he was alive. Nothing worked. Then he got out one of his huge medical textbooks, went to one of the incontrovertible facts about dead people. They don't bleed. With the heart stopping, the blood coagulating, you no longer bleed. He laid out the evidence in pages and pages of medical textbook, and the man eventually got to the point where he understood perfectly well on the basis of the evidence, dead people don't bleed. At which point the psychiatrist got a pin jabbed it in his arm, blood spurt out everywhere. The man looked at his arm and said, well, what do you know, dead people do bleed after all. <laughs> Completely untrue. But it illustrates something that is true. Evidence is not the only basis of some of the biggest decisions in life. I think I said yesterday, I am more and more convinced that evidence just plays one part in people's movement toward or away from Christianity. What also plays a part are things like our previous experience of Christians, positive or negative, uh, our life preferences, that's a big one, because there's no question if Jesus really did rise again, gives credibility to the things he said about himself, which were pretty huge, and that has big claims on our lives. So I can well understand the motive of someone who says, I'd rather him not to have got up again. And that is just as big a factor in people's decision to accept this stuff or not. In my experience, people's reluctance to accept the risen Christ 
has at least as much to do with wanting to avoid Christ's claim on their lives as it does with the need for more evidence. We have the kind of evidence you would expect if Jesus really did rise again. And more evidence than you'd expect if he didn't. But evidence only gets you so far. The rest is up to your own personal inclination and other mysterious factors. With that point, I'll end, hand over, and if we've got time for questions, I'm happy to have a go. Thanks. Well, we do have about five minutes for John to field some questions from the audience, so if you have any, please raise your hand and we'll take them. At the back. Uh, that's a good example of allowing an assumption about what is physically impossible in the universe to drive the conclusion. And, and, and I agree. If you've already decided that there isn't a God who is able to do something like a resurrection, then you will go for any sort of psychological possibility, as you say, no matter how improbable, over a physical, what you regard as an impossibility. My point is... If there is a God, which is another question entirely, who is over nature, in nature, works through nature, and so on, then one can't say it's a physical impossibility. One has to just look for the kind of evidence you would expect if it did happen. And, in fact, that's what we have. I'm not disputing your logic. I'm just saying it's a logic driven by a particular assumption, which I think is questionable. Yeah. I'd say, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, you, can, you, you can read it that way. My, my, point is, my point is not that I'm trying to prove this. See, people, people in our context tend to assume the whole Christian thing's a delusion, and they always throw this on Christians. Oh, you just invented a father in the sky. You want a father in the sky, so you believe in him. You know, Ludwig Feuerbach's view of a wish fulfillment. All right? You long for something, you imagine it to be true, regardless of the evidence. All I'm doing is saying exactly the same thing applies to your unbelief. Not your unbelief, I'm just saying if you happen to be an atheist, Ludwig Feuerbach is, is just as much a critic of you because you don't want there to be a God who's looking over your life, so you're just inventing the idea that he's not there. So wish fulfillment cuts both ways. Yeah? And I'm very happy for someone to say that my little story at the end about dead people don't bleed cuts both ways. It does. But people just so often assume it only cuts against 
the Christian. I'm saying it cuts straight back the other way as well. So in the end, you just got to ask yourself, do we have the kind of evidence you would expect if a man did rise again in AD 30? And the answer is, we actually do. The, the problem is, what do you do with that? That's all I'm getting at today. On Zeitgeist, uh, I don't know if they've edited the last bit of the Zeitgeist out nowadays, but the original version of Zeitgeist ends with a whole 10 minute thing on how the Twin Towers was a CIA conspiracy, yeah, so that um, America could get into the war against the Islamic world, right? And I reckon, you know, good on them because they're just showing how nuts they are. <laughs> okay? if, if that's the level of the argument, then I say that, you know, that should give the whole thing away. As for all the historical stuff about Jesus, it's nuts. I read it, uh, sorry, watched it, and just laughed my head off and was amazed that I started to get emails from people saying, in Zeitgeist it says X, Y, and Z, you know, can you give me the historical analysis? I say, well, there isn't any historical analysis because they're just making stuff up. <laughs> um, on the question of Jesus never existed, on Thursday's talk, was it last Thursday's talk, uh, I, uh, I threw out the challenge uh, to find a professional historian in any university in the world who doubts Jesus' existence. Because I've gone looking for it. I've even asked leading classical historians if they know of a single ancient historian or biblical historian in any university in the world who argues Jesus didn't exist, and they've all said no. And I've asked some of the leaders in the whole industry, all right? Um, so when people like Michel Onfray, the great French atheist, or Christopher Hitchens, uh, the British, now American atheist, uh, and Richard Dawkins say that Jesus' existence is still a matter of scholarly dispute, it's, it's just intellectually incredible. And I think very revealing, and as I mentioned on Thursday, and I'll say it again in case you, some of you weren't here, Dawkins gives the game away because he quotes one scholar as someone who's made a serious historical case against Jesus' existence, and it's George Wells, professor at London University, he says. What he doesn't tell us is that George Wells is a professor of German language at London University, not a historian. Now, when you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, I mean, I've got nothing against German, yeah. This is sehr gut. But when you've, got a, when you've got to scrape down and get a language professor to back up your argument, it's a giveaway. It's a giveaway. And atheists keep on repeating it. Um, anyway, I, I won't go on, but it's a little bit annoying. Well, let's thank John once more. Hasn't it been really valuable to reconsider the life of Jesus through the lens of history as John has done with us the last few days? Please make use of the feedback forms if you'd like to find out more information about the person of Jesus.
Uh, also, co consider coming along on, on this Thursday to a talk by Malcolm Gill on the relevance of Jesus at 1pm back in the chemistry building. And make sure to check the back of your outlines for more information about what's happening in the festival over the next coming days. Lots of exciting things happening. But we're now going to be serving afternoon tea just outside and downstairs in the chemistry courtyard. So please join us there. Thanks for coming and I'll see you later.